You're listening to a podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. This subject of these three W's that we're going to be talking about are of utmost importance. And really, in so many ways, it really brings it down. It dials everything down to why we are here and why we are doing what we are doing. What does a disciple of Jesus look like? If somebody was to come up to you on the street this afternoon or sometime this week and say, what what does it mean to be a Christian? What would you answer them? Do you have an answer? Do you know what the characteristics, how would you answer that very important question? Would you answer them, well, it's someone who goes to church. Is it somebody who reads their Bible faithfully? Is it somebody who has been baptized either, you know, as an infant or as an adult? Or, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of different possibilities and answers that you might have or people might have or, or, or ideas they, they may think about. Maybe, maybe it's somebody who prays a lot and, and that's the Christian. That is someone who is, is, is a disciple of Jesus Christ. Or somebody who gives like 10% of their or more of their income to the Lord's work, or, or maybe it's a, someone who lives a certain lifestyle, does certain things, and doesn't do other things. It was about six years ago now, while I was pastoring in Alberta, after seeing and being a part of a very encouraging work, not easy work, not at all, but very encouraging work as we saw God little by little grow a church in a small community and to see God do just a, an amazing thing. And we, we believe solidly that we, that we needed to preach the word and to preach it boldly. We, we believed we built, we're building that church on a foundation of prayer and, and worship was powerful and impactful. Not at the start. It was often painful and difficult, but it continued to grow and became something that was very powerful, impactful worship services. And, and through those years that we were there, we got to be a part of that work for, for 14 years almost. And, and we saw just many people come to faith in Jesus Christ. We saw over 100 people in that time. Actually, it was closer to 150 people who were baptized. We nicely finished a, a building expansion of t- uh, just a humongous addition onto our building. It was $2.4 million, and for a small town of 3,000, it was one of the largest buildings except for the school and the hockey rink. And, and, and so th- it, there was a lot of happening. And, and as I said, it wasn't easy work. There were struggles and there was battles, and, 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 and yet it had all the marks of a successful church. And, and, and other pastors would often ask and say, how is it that you could see virtually 10% of your community coming to church on a Sunday morning. That's phenomenal. And, and get to see a, a, a community be transformed by the power of the gospel. And it was, you know, how does that happen? And, and so we had all the marks in so many ways of a successful church. And yet as the building was nearing completion, and as everything, these impactful worship services were happening, and people were getting baptized, and our kids program, and our summer kids camp was just going like great guns. It was so amazing. I, I started to get a little disillusioned. There was a lot of bitterness and unforgiveness in our church, and And people would get hurt over some of the silliest things and and weren't able to let things go. I mean, just some silly disagreements. And and as everything was kind of spinning and going quite well, there, there was people who were walking away from church. 
Sometimes even their faith. They said, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And for me, it was the summertime. It caused me to go into just a, a season of disillusionment and questioning. And, and it was in those times that some scriptures just started to really impact me and concern me and, and speak to me. In scripture, like in Matthew chapter 7, you may want to write this down on the card and you can look at it later on. But Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, it says there, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, and this is a concerning word, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and, and cast out demons in your name and, and do many mighty works in your name? And, and then I will de- declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers. Of lawlessness. Those are some pretty strong words. Or in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15 it says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And, and the writer of Hebrews was writing that to church people. And he's, as he's writing to church people he says, Make sure that no one fails to, to really come to faith in Christ. That they don't miss the grace of our God. That they're in church but they're not in Christ. These are sobering passages, and there's others that go along with this. And, and, and they tell us that it's possible to go to church, to be brought up in a Christian home, to, to pray a prayer, to get baptized, to serve in the church, to be even a leader in the church, and, and, and carry certain spiritual functions within the church, and still miss the grace of God. That's concerning. And this disillusionment led me to a crisis and, and caused me and then, then eventually the church that, that we were leading to, to take a deep and serious examination of our hearts. And it started with my own heart first and foremost. You see, Jesus even said in Matthew 15, he says that people can honor him or, or he take, takes and quotes the words from Isaiah and he says people can honor God with our lips but have hearts that are far from him. And so we can go through the motions, we can sing the songs, we can pray the prayers, we can say all the right things, and, and yet have hearts that are, are far from him. And all of us at times, if we were to admit, to be honest, would say that our lips and our heart aren't always in sync. And that's where we come back to the Lord. And it starts with hearts that are worshiping hearts. That is why we're going to be talking about today worshiping Christ. What does an authentic disciple of Jesus Christ look like? What is the characteristic of them? Well, today we're going to talk about they worship Christ. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to worship Christ? We worship in response to what Christ has done for us. And so we're going to examine the word and we also need to examine our own lives. And it is my prayer that we just don't know the right answers and have the right head knowledge, but that it's also Connecting with our hearts. You see, all of life is worship. We are constantly always worshiping. We are. It just kind of sometimes changes the object of who or what we are worshiping. Sometimes we'll, we'll worship our bank accounts or our lifestyle or sex or our job or our reputations or 
our recreation or, or we can worship other people and we, we, we do things to try to get in good with someone or to look good in front of someone. And, and when that's the case, there's an aspect where we worship them. And, and here it is, and I encourage you to write this down if you're taking notes. I encourage you to be taking notes and to be writing down extra references as I refer to them because I'd love for you to study it further this week. But here, write this down. A genuine disciple worships Christ. A genuine disciple, if somebody asks you, what does a Christian look like? What does it mean to be a disciple? The number one thing is we are worshipers of Christ. We worship Jesus. And that's our second pillar. We desire to lift high the name of Jesus through worship. And that isn't just something that we do on a Sunday morning, as we were led in a, in a tremendous way this morning. It's more than that. It's, worship is all of our lives. It's, it's what we do all throughout the week. And, and our second pillar there, lifting high the name of Jesus in worship, in John chapter 4, verse 24, it says, true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. The truth of God's word, but also connecting with our spirit along with the Holy Spirit. And so, what is true worship? Is it us gathering together on a Sunday morning, singing a few worship songs, listening to the preacher, and then close out with another song? Is that what worship is? No. It's all of life. And today we're not going to go into all the different aspects of worship. There have been books there. I mean, we could spend the next few months talking about worship. And we're going to talk about it for one week, but we're going to do it from about the ten to 20,000 foot level. We're going to do it from, from up high. We're going to see kind of the, the, the highest part of worship and, and what we are to do. And, and so we're not going to go into the how to worship and, and different biblical aspects of worship. Um, we're going to cover that in Harvest Essentials, our membership class, and I'd encourage you to be a part of that when that starts up a little later on um, in, in the next month or so. And so just encourage you with that, that that will be happening. But today we need to look at, the, from the 10, 20,000 foot level of worship, we need to look at the object of our worship. We need to have the right theology. We have to have the right understanding in order to have the right practice. And today... We're going to look at a very unique passage in Hebrews chapter 12. In fact, most of it, it would seem, has absolutely nothing to do with worship until we get to the last few verses. Those are the only ones that actually say the word worship. But you will see that all of Hebrews 12, which we're not going to go through all the chapter this um, today, but... Uh, but this entire chapter is leading up to what is authentic worship. And in verse 28 of Hebrews 12, I'm going to read from, from that, and then we're going to back up a few verses because we need to put it in the worship context here. And so we're first of all going to read um, ch- verses 28 to 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So really, there's not a lot said in this chapter about worship. There's just even the word is only mentioned once here. But now we need to back up the boat a little bit. We're going to back it up to, to, to uh, verse 18. And here is our first point for today is that true worship begins with the right view of God. We must have the right view of God. Deeply embedded for the people that were receiving this letter from, from the writer, uh, 
deeply embedded in their minds, in their memory, was the experience of the Jewish people who were wanderers, who wandered through the wilderness, who were in Egypt as slaves. They longed for the promised land. They longed for a city. They longed for a place where they could raise their kids in peace and prosperity and and dwell forever and and worship God and and put down some roots. And and in the Old Testament, we see that, that they had their sights set then on Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the city. Jerusalem was that city, that fortress, that place where God, they could go and worship him. And and you see some of the the verses in in the Psalms. I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord because they got to go worship and they got to go back to Jerusalem. And and that's why even today, Jerusalem is such an important part of our history because there are so many deep roots there. and, and, And that is the city of God. It was to be the city of peace for them. And don't we all want that in our lives? Don't we all just want some peace? Don't we all just kind of want to be happy and, 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 and have some prosperity and, and have some good times and to know that things are safe and our family is safe? And wouldn't it, isn't it just nice to maybe get some kind of an escape from the craziness of the world? Well, we've all chosen And we're all choosing today a course of life that we think is going to make us happy. It's going to satisfy us. And you see, and we all crave and we desire to have peace and and, and aspects of prosperity. That's why we work. That's why we go to school. That's why we we do certain things because we want to live a certain lifestyle. We kind of just want to be able to enjoy life and and be happy. And and there's nothing wrong with that. That's, That's a desire that we've been created to have. And when we're younger, oftentimes it's like if I get my education and get that degree and get that job, and, and then we start thinking if I have that good marriage and if I make enough money and, and, and have some extra money to put in the bank and, 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 and money for a pension so when I retire, there's money to, to retire on. And, and we think this is what will give us, that, that will be our city. That will be that place of, of safety. And just as the Israelites were looking for that. And the invitation in this chapter is to make God the primary source in your life. But oftentimes we make other things and other people the primary source of our joy, of our fulfillment. That he would be that primary source of our security. Yeah, the bank account may be empty, but we can trust him. That our identity is found not in what other people say about us, it's in what God says and what God knows and feels and thinks about us. And so in this passage, we see it, they refer to something kind of, again, it's, it's kind of this old term that would have made a lot of sense to them, doesn't make a lot of sense to us today, but they refer to Mount Zion. And, the, and which is kind of the, the city of God for them. And it's a place where God would dwell and where God would take care of them and And yet the people were confused. They were confused about their understanding of God. They were longing and hoping to get to this Mount Zion. And and yet all they knew was something else. It was Mount Sinai. 
And Mount Sinai is kind of an interesting thing. And, and, and Mount Sinai, it, it was a place of where Moses received the Ten Commandments. I think we have a picture. It might be a little washed out because of our screen issue here today. But, but that is the, the place where Mount Sinai was. That was the place where God came down. That's the place where, where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And, and this was a place where God came and revealed his holiness and his power. And it was covered with a cloud. There was thunder. There was lightning. There was, it was a very sacred very barren and rocky and rough and no trees or shrubs or anything like that. And this was a place where the earth would shake. And God's presence came down to earth there on Mount Sinai. And in verse 18, this is where we're going to read here a number of verses because here is, is their image of this of God, and, 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 and they want to find their refuge in God, but all they can think of is this Mount Sinai, and, and just listen to this description here. And it says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words, are, words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, this is a crazy passage. When you first read it, it's like, what are they talking about? And especially for us, a lot of this doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. We just want to quickly unpack this and, and, and get an understanding of this because this is important for us to understand in order for us to understand authentic worship. Aaron and Moses would go up to the mountain. They were the only ones that were permitted to go on that mountain. In fact, they set a perimeter around the base of that mountain. And if anyone crossed that perimeter, even if it was a sheep or a goat or, or just one of their dogs would go to the base of the mountain, they would have to kill that dog. And not even, they weren't even allowed to touch it. And you can read about the, the rules and the regulations in, about this in Exodus 19 and 20, where it says if, if anyone touches the base, if, if, if an animal, like it says here, if a beast goes and crosses that line, don't even touch them. Just start picking up stones and just stone them to death. Destroy it because this is a very sacred place and this is where the holiness of God, this is where you, they would just be able to visualize and hear the ineffable glory of God that dwells in un, uh, unapproachable light. And in fact, this is no one can see God and live. You see, God isn't some guy walking around in a white house coat and a white beard and long white flowing hair. God's nature is unchanging. His standard is unreachable. God's wrath is unavoidable. God's favor is unattainable. That's the God of holiness. That is the God who came down on this mountain. And even for Moses, it said he trembled with fear on this mountain. Now, Moses, let's face it, I mean, he wasn't a wimp. He wasn't a pansy. If you, I mean, this guy was a tough guy. I mean, he saw in his younger years, he saw an Egyptian taking it out on one of the, the Hebrew children or one of the Hebrew slaves. What did he do? He pulverized the guy. He killed him and then buried him. He's kind of a man of action. He's kind of a tough guy. If he's going to walk up and just kill someone like that, he's pretty tough. Then, I mean, he stands before the Egyptian pharaoh, the mighty leader, the, the pharaoh, and over and over again he stands in front of him and says, let my people go. This guy's got some courage to him. He's not a wimp. 
Yeah, he struggled with some fear and, you know, figured he had a bit of a speaking problem. But, but you know, the Lord helped him in that and kind of corrected and reprimanded him for that. But, but he's a tough guy. I mean, he's standing in front of the Pharaoh. He's killing a guy. Then he leads a few million people out of Egypt into the promised land. I mean, he's no softy. And yet, even when it comes to the Ten Commandments, and he's not like, hey, big guy, can I get some, can I get a copy of those tablets from you? No. There's fear. There's trembling. And one of the great dangers even today is we've trivialized God. We've, we've kind of made him as, you know, the buddy that we just put our arm around. And, and that is not the God that we see here at all. That's not the God of the Bible. There's fear. There's awe. In fact, run. It's someone you want to stay away from. I mean, you, you don't want to get close to him. I mean, you better not tick him off. You could get in serious trouble. And, and oftentimes this can be our view of God. To be in fear. He's angry. He's powerful. That he's distant. He's up somewhere on a mountain. And I don't know about you, but... Um, for some reason, even to this day, I have a tremendous fear, if you want to say it. Some might say respect, but no, there's a little fear and a little knot in my stomach when, whenever I see the flashing blue and red lights somewhere behind me. And I start thinking, uh-oh, check my speed. Are they coming after me? And sometimes um, in the vehicle I've been driving in, they, they have come after that vehicle. Charlotte was driving. Uh, no, that's not necessarily true. But, um, and, and, and I think some of this, this fear comes from when I was just a little kid. That I remember one time we were driving from Regina to Carrot River, Saskatchewan to go and to find my, um, to go and spend time with our relatives there. And my dad got pulled over by the police. He was speeding. And I remember ducking in the back seat. You didn't have to wear seat belts back then. I was ducking in the back seat. And then afterwards, my dad said that he, um, that he got pinched. That was his term for, I guess, getting you know, pulled over, getting fined or whatever it is. But for whatever, in my mind, what I thought when I was uh, just a, this young kid, probably 13, no, probably younger than that, was that the police officer actually took a pair of pliers and took my dad's arm and actually pinched him. And that's, that was the image. For me, currency didn't mean much, but pain meant a lot. And I kind of thought, my dad got pinched. He got, you know, and so there was this, you know, this fear that probably started back then of police officers. And yeah, maybe it's respect, but it's often like, oh no, what did I do? But over the years, I've grown to understand and appreciate those who keep the law and I've actually found a few of them to actually be quite nice people and to actually have personalities and realize you don't have to fear them. Our understanding of God can sometimes be like that or we can have this mixed understanding of who God is. And when it comes to God, yes, we are to fear Him because everything I explained about what happened on that mountain is serious stuff. That is the God of holiness, a God of wrath, a God of justice. You might say, Melvin, we don't need to fear him. Like, oh, be afraid of him. We just need to respect him. No. Fear. We are to fear him over and over and over again, especially through the Psalms, but in God's word, it says that we are to fear him. And in fact, Proverbs 9 says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. 
And so look at Moses. He's not, he's not walking up buddy-buddy to God, even though he's, he's God's chosen leader and, and, and one he's... It says he, he even trembles with fear in the presence of God. And one day, folks, we need to realize you and I will stand before this God. We will stand before him. Every knee, every tongue, every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And right in there will be, our, will be God the Father. Some of you might think, well, when it's my turn to stand before God, I'm going to tell him a thing or two. I've got a few issues for him. You know, if you do that, just give me a heads up. If, 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 if I'm somewhere in the line behind you or whatever, I'm running the other way because if you dare approach God like that, I, I don't know what's going to happen to you. We don't go walking up, you know, I, you know I'm going to have it out with him. That's like us, you know what, going up to a lion in the wild, that's hungry, that hasn't eaten for a few days, and thinking we can just go up and start slapping it. Are you kidding? What's going to happen? You're in trouble. You're going to become that next meal for that lion. That's our God. And this is serious stuff. The wrath, the power, the holiness, the glory of our God. And the Bible tells us he's going to shake the world again. And I believe that shaking is starting. He's going to shake the world and he's going to judge the world. Thank you for coming today. With that, we'll close and you can go home. You want to pray or just leave? Aren't you glad it's not over? I'm not quite done. I'm, 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 only, I'm getting to the good stuff. I'm sharing you the hard news, the, 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 the burdensome, the, the, the truth of God's word. But, but authentic worship begins with the right view of God. But let's get to some good news. And that is authentic worship has an ever-deepening understanding of the work of Jesus Christ. It has an ever-deepening understanding of the work of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22. <laughs> there are some amazing buts in the Bible. This is one of them. All right? Verse 22. It says, but, because the story doesn't end here, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. So God's going to be there. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than, than, than the blood of Abel. So verse 22, it says, but the story doesn't end. The story doesn't end on Mount Sinai. It's not about the frightening, isolated, unaccessible mountain where God is far off and angry and, 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 and full of his holiness and majesty and power. Instead, the writer is saying, there's another mountain. There's another mountain and he calls it Mount Zion. It's, it, actually, Mount Zion is one of the hills that Jerusalem is built on and and for the Jew, this was the dwelling place of God. So, so when they're hearing this, that there's the Mount Zion, they're like, oh, okay, there's, there's, it's not just about Mount Zion. There's, 
mountain. Not Mount Sinai, but there's Mount Zion. But he goes on to say, the heavenly Mount Zion. That there's something even more than, than just simply the Mount Sinai or there in Jerusalem. He's, he's talking about the heavenly Jerusalem. Folks, this is an amazing description when you break this down, what this is all about. He says, you have come. I encourage you, if you have your Bibles and you want to underline something, underline those words. You have come to this mountain. That, that's an important word. That tense means that the transaction has been made. Your future is secure. You have come to that mountain. You are there. This is the tense that speaks as completed action, a done deal for those who have received the gospel. And it goes on to describe this place of incredible grandeur and, and, and I mean, it says innumerable angels. Going to be huge, massive. It talks about the saints that are righteous. That's you and me being righteous. Perfect. You ever have people in your life that just kind of drive you crazy? They're not going to drive you crazy in heaven. They'll be perfect. And you'll be perfect. And these things won't bother you. But it goes on. Innumerable angels. Massive and amazing. You know, it was pretty exciting for Canada to win the, the gold medal in, in the junior hockey this past week. I'm, I'm sure probably a few of you followed it. And maybe even a few of you even lost your voices while you were um, cheering for Team Canada. It was great that, you know, um, they won it on Canadian soil after not winning that, the gold medal and actually not even getting into the medal rounds the last number of years and just having some problems with that. It was just... And, and I heard the stories, the reporters, even Prime Minister Harper was there, and, and, and they were all saying the, the energy in the room in, in that arena, the 20,000 fans or so that were there, it was just electric. And I mean, well, part of it was finally Toronto had something to cheer about in the sports world. I mean, finally something positive is going on. Uh, can I get an amen for that? Um, anyways, it comes down end of the game, Canada wins, the place is going crazy, and then in the end, they're singing Oh Canada, and, and I doubt that there is a Canadian that would watch that, that, that's seen that, and to see people joining together and lifting their voices for Oh Canada, we rock it, hockey, and, and, and you know, I mean, they're just, the players are all, you know, singing, and it sounded awful, they, they can't sing very well, but they play well, and, and so that's a good thing, and, and, and I mean, just that room, I mean, people didn't want to leave afterwards, it was just so amazing. Folks, no earthly celebration will ever even come close to touching what we will be experiencing in heaven. It's going to be amazing. And, and you, you'll never have to leave. You're there. That's the glory that we have waiting for us. Nothing will compare to it. Verse 23, it says, The assembly of the firstborn. You know what that's a reference to? That's a reference to you and to me. You know how, uh, how many firstborns do we have here? Yeah, okay. Good number of firstborns. You know, oftentimes, um, firstborns oftentimes at, can have more privileges or can have more responsibilities or, or sometimes, I mean, and especially in Old Testament time, the firstborn was was pretty important position to have. And if you were kind of lower down on, 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 on the, you know what, 
what do you call it kind of chain? The food chain almost literally. It was like, oh, you, because it was always about the firstborn. And, and so the firstborn, I mean, that was pretty significant. And, and so I knew my Bible at a young age growing up in a, in a great home that I'm so thankful for. And I had an older sister. But I also knew that in the Old Testament that the older sister didn't matter as much as the oldest son. So whenever people would say, well, who's the oldest in the family? And she would be quick, like a lot of you firstborns. I saw the hand. Yep, I'm firstborn. Yep, because that's part of your personality. She would, you know, right away say, well, I'm, I'm the oldest. I'm the firstborn. And then I would just have to say, well, biblically, I'm the firstborn. Oh, it would drive her crazy. Um, and I enjoyed that kind of thing. Well, in heaven... We are all firstborn. We are firstborn sons and daughters of Christ. He has no third and fourth generation children. He has no nieces, no nephews, no grandchildren. Firstborn, that's it. And it says the assembly, it talks about being enrolled. We have been enrolled in heaven. There's that important word in there. It talks about some sort of enrollment. There's a list. And scripture teaches there is a list. In heaven, the book of life. It's a massive book. You think, well, how big can it be? Well, look at our universe. It, it, it's massive. God, God just has a much bigger scale of massivity, if that is a such word, than we could ever imagine. And Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, Revelation 13, verse 8, Revelation 17, 8, all speak of this book, this enrollment book. The book of life, is your name in it? If your name is in it, you are a firstborn child. You are heading to the heavenly kingdom one day. In the end, you win. Victory is assured. And if you die or Christ returns and your name is not in the book of life, in Revelations 25 it says, you'll be thrown into the lake of fire. That's serious words. That's serious words of warning in Scripture. And so I have to ask you here this morning, you don't answer out loud, you answer in your own spirit. Have you been enrolled in heaven? Have you been to the heavenly Mount Zion? You might be sitting here thinking, uh, I think so. I, I, maybe it's, uh, I don't know. Or maybe it's, I, I, I hope so. I have a hope. Do you know for certain? Because you can you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And listen, you may have been sitting in church for many years and you think, oh yeah, I prayed a prayer, oh, I did this, you know, and, and all of that. Folks, remember that passage I read in Matthew about depart from me? I never knew you. You need to know. You need to take stock. You need to check your own life. And so, how do I know? I mean, even First John says that he tells us these things so that we can know that we have eternal life, that it's not just going to be a guess at the end, but that we know. It's interesting, I have an aunt in, in Regina who, before Christmas, was diagnosed with a cancerous brain tumor and they removed it, and, and yet not sure of the prognosis for her and how long she'll have. <laughs> My brother said to me, he says, you should just, went and saw her over Christmas and, and she's just beside herself with the peace of God and with even the joy knowing that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then she gets tears in her eyes and she says, I get to see my Jesus and I get to see my son who died almost 40 years ago. She can't wait. She's got the peace. 
She's, she knows that, that her future is secure, that if cancer takes her and whatever will eventually take her, she's in her 70s, just as eventually something will take each one of us that we can not just, well, I hope I, I wake up in heaven. You can know these truths. And it's all made possible because of what we read in this passage, because of someone else who is present there at this incredible mountain, at this Mount Zion. Who is there? Who's there? Jesus, the mediator. The blood of the Lamb was sprinkled, was shed on our behalf. His crucifixion, it kind of bore a kind of an eerie similarity to Mount Sinai, didn't it? Jesus' crucifixion took place on top of a small mountain. There was darkness. There was the earth that was shaking, the rock split. And there he absorbed the judgment of God, the wrath of God, so that when God now looks at you and me, he doesn't see us first. He sees Jesus. He sees everything that was poured out on Jesus, the wrath, all of the ways that we have fallen short have all been forgiven, and we have access now to God, the Holy One, where, where Moses would tremble with fear in heaven, it won't be the same kind of trembling. It will be awe. It will be majesty. There will be the aspect of fear, but, but healthy and, and just blown away that what God has done for us in the provision of His own Son. And so it's taking Jesus and receiving Him as our Lord and as our Savior For as many as received him, to to them he gave the right to become his sons and his daughters, firstborn sons and daughters. It's realizing there's nothing that you can do to earn this except to receive him by faith. That old hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling, to what Christ has done. That's the answer right there. So how do we know? prayed a prayer maybe when you were five, when you were 15, or maybe it's just in the last few years you prayed this prayer. Was it just simply some words? No. How you know is there's a worship of Christ. There's a desire to worship Jesus and to live for him because we understand what he has done. It's just not just some some little banking transaction that took place. There's there's meaning, there's significance to it, and and there's a growing desire to to want to get to know him and, and worship and, and work for him and, and walk with him. And, and, and those are some of the other things we talk about, but our walking with Christ and our work for Christ, the things that we do in staying and building that relationship with him and our working for Christ, our serving for, for Christ, all flows out of that understanding that we worship him, that we know him in a personal way. If we think that somehow if we work for him and if we walk with him, that somehow it will cause us to, to worship him, that's backwards. It is by grace we have been saved through faith, not of works, so that no one, none of these matter ultimately. I mean, these are important, but these are the fruit that the work has taken place, that we are worshipers of Christ. And it's on that basis that we live for Him. It's because of the gospel, His grace and His mercy. You say, oh, well, I've, I've, I received that years ago. You know what? The gospel isn't something you ever get past. It's something you go deeper and deeper into. 
And even as a number of years ago, as I shared with you the journey that I was on and, and, and leading our church through, there was an aspect in my own life, I can see it now, where, where all of a sudden it, it was kind of like, I get it. It's got to be about the heart. It's about being under the waterfall of God's grace and his mercy. And that becomes the motivator for why we serve and why we live for him. And that's the basis by which we forgive somebody when they've wronged us because he has forgiven us over and over again. But what started to happen in my thinking was my own personal thinking in that now I get this and and you people don't get it. And I kind of started thinking, I've arrived. I I understand this now. And, And the Lord needed to teach me through interesting, painful circumstances at times that I'm just slowly getting this. I'm never going to fully get or understand or master the greatness and the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. The only way that I will finally do that is when I am in heaven and righteous before him. Until then, it's that journey of continuing to to learn and to go deeper in his grace and in his, his great mercy. And so it's in humility that when we mess up and we fall short, we confess and we repent What's the result of this kind of a life? That yes, we walk with Christ and we're going to talk next week about ways that we walk with Christ and yes then, there's a desire to work for Christ. It's not like, oh well, I guess I better serve him now. I guess I better do this. You know, that's what Christians do. No, there, there is a joy. There is a motivation because of what Christ has done that we want to do this. Not out of compulsion or, or guilt. or It's out of joy. And, and what is the result? First of all, security. You might want to write this down. It, it, it's not going to be on the screen. Oh, it is on the screen. Security. I am in Christ. He is in me. And nothing will separate me from the love of Christ. The result of a heart that worships is security. That even as the world shakes, and it's going to continue to shake. I mean, just seeing what happened in France, we're going to see an escalation. Even our prime minister said... This is just, this is a segment in, in our history, in the history of our world that, that we're going to see this continue on and, and we're going to see the wars, we're going to see things happen and yet we are going to receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In the end, we win. Why? Because in the book of Revelation, you read that, we win. I read, heard a story years ago uh, of a little girl who was reading one night in her, her bedroom and her parents came and said, okay, turn out the light, you need to get to sleep. And, 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 and she was saying, oh, it, but it, it's just so good right now. I'm at a point where, where, where the, the hero in, in the book, the, the person who this is written about is in some serious trouble and, and it's really building right now. And, and oh, I, I, I'm just too excited. I, I, I can't fall asleep. And, and, and so, the, so she they said, but you need to turn out the light. You need to get to sleep. And a little while later, they, they looked and they saw the light still on under, under the door and they went back in. And she was still reading. They said, no, you, you got to get to sleep now. She said, but I can't. It, it, it just, it's at a very uh, tender part of the, the story. And a little while later, parents popped their head and she just turned out the light and there was a big smile on her face. And they said to her, did you finish the book? She says, no, I didn't finish it, but I read the last chapter. And everything turned out. Folks, the last chapter in the book of our lives coincides with the last chapter of God's word. Say that in the end, it's victory. And because of that, we worship. 
Because of that, we sing. We sing with our voices. We, we worship with our bodies, with our attitudes, with our actions. What's another result? Joy. Joy. Unspeakable joy. Because of what he has done. I mean, as we get into the book of Philippians in the month of February, we see that here is a guy writing the Apostle Paul on the prison floor, and he is just bubbling with joy, even though he's in just a stink hole. He has joy because he's worshiping. And it's keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. The first part of chapter 12 is that reminder keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And then I want to just close by reading verses 28 and 29 because now in light of everything we talked about Mount Sinai, but now the heavenly Mount, um, Mount Zion, this kingdom that will not be shaken, it says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. See that reminder again that, that God hasn't changed. He's still that consuming fire. But now we can worship him and, and, and bring offering before him because of what Christ has done. And so our response is this worship. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Our response is total submission to him. Run to him and run away from sin. And, and we want to... We have a disgust towards sin and the things that, that drag us away. And there's urgency in this. It's not like, yeah, I'll think about it. Yeah, I'll do it at some point. No, in verse 25 it says there that, that don't refuse him. Don't shun him. Don't avoid him. When you hear the voice of God speaking to you, respond. That chapter in, in, in chapter 12 also just gives some, some warnings of some things that will affect our worship and will get our eyes off of Jesus and can keep some from the kingdom. Things like bitterness, unforgiveness. What was that quote last week I shared with you? It was just so beautiful that that we can forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. Because of the grace that we have been given, we extend grace to others. But bitterness and unforgiveness are dangerous, dangerously affects our worship. Division. We are to seek to live at peace with others. Make things right. Keep short accounts with others. Sensual pleasures. It talks about Esau, how he sold the birthright just, just for sensual pleasures, just to, to get something quick. Or inattention, not, not taking stock of our lives and, and, and just kind of running carefree and just thinking, oh, in the end, it'll all work out. No. It'll all work out in and through Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we bow before you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. May our understanding of your holiness, like Isaiah, when he was in your presence, he, he said those words, holy, 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 for I am a man of unclean lips. Father, thank you that because of Christ we can come into your presence with boldness, with confidence, not with arrogance, not with power and 
our own authority, but under humility and gratefulness, we approach you with great fear and respect. Lord, I pray that if anyone is not sure today about where they stand with you, that they would, would be sure of that by speaking to me or somebody who can, that they know can, can guide them in these saving truths of the gospel. Lord, may each one of us examine our own lives. Are we working for our salvation and just think that if I do this and don't do this, I'm in? Because God, because of Christ, you're not like that angry judge that's just out to whack us when we mess up. You are the God who loves and forgives and poured out all the wrath that we deserve on Jesus. And may we worship you, Jesus, even in, in these moments as we sing of the reasons upon reasons that we have to praise you and to glorify you. May it not just be with our lips this week, may it be with our, our heart and with our actions. And may we be people who grow in worship of you. Lord, I pray that today, that today would be the day of, of true salvation, perhaps for some that have been sitting in church and said a prayer years ago, but it's never really meant anything. And, and they've just been finding that they've been running and striving and, and trying to, to get that peace and that assurance. And that peace, that assurance only comes through faith and trust in the precious blood of Christ and what he has done. And Lord, your spirit then resonates with our spirit that we are your children when we receive you and walk with you in this way. So, Lord, we pray that we would see that our lives, our worship and our walk and our work is not us living for God, but a God who is living for us. Thank you for your mercies, your grace. Let's stand together as we worship him.